Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. My name is Steve House. I'll be your host today, and I'm super excited to welcome a new guest, a new name and face to the Uphill Athlete community, but certainly not a new name or face to the big mountains of the world. Guy Cotter, welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, we've known each other for quite some time. You know, ha- tell tell us a little bit about you know who is Guy Cotter, where are you coming from, how do you describe yourself? How do I describe myself? Um, well, my name's Guy Cotter. I come from New Zealand. I'm a mountain guide based there, and I run a mountain guiding company called Adventure Consultants. Uh, many people would have heard of that uh, because of uh, you know, the events probably back in 1996, uh, Rob Wall was my friend and mentor, um, ran the business. And from 1992, uh, I was involved with Adventure Consultants along with Rob Wall and his partner, Gary Ball, uh, in running some of the very first guided expeditions to Mount Everest. So I was there in 92, 93, uh, I was there in 95, and uh, I was guiding more in 96 when uh, things went down on on Everest with Rob and the, and the party and Scott Fisher and co. Uh, then I went on and purchased the the company. I'd already had a small guiding company in New Zealand. Uh, I'm an IFMGA guide and uh, I grew Adventure Consultants to operate expeditions all over the world. Uh, when Rob or Gary Bald owned it, they, they were doing like four expeditions a year uh, in the 10 years or so after that, we were doing more than 35 expeditions a year, as well as having a, a guiding school in New Zealand uh, and in Chamonix in the Alps. So uh, we got kind of busy. So through that period, I climbed Everest uh, five wait, times. Wait, can I, I need to, I need to just interject here uh, for a moment, if I may, because uh, before we go, uh, you know, through the, the whole history here, I just want to uh, step back a moment. And I think that everyone listening, of course, has heard about, you know, the tragedy on Mount Everest in 1996. And of course, heard about adventure consultants. And I think, you know, many of our uphill athlete climbers and athletes have climbed with, with you, both on Everest and on other mountains across the globe. And you know, I was a little bit tongue in cheek. I think that, you know, your exploits are are well known uh, in much of the mountaineering community and certainly in the big mountain guiding community. I think that you are truly a pioneer of big mountain guiding and expeditionary guiding, not just you, but your whole company and the way the standards that you have been setting for a long time over there. So let's just back up a little bit. And I want to talk about, uh, you know, you as a climber, like take me back to, you know, we're, we're, you're, you're, I don't know, half a generation or so older than me. So we have a lot of mutual friends, Barry Blanchard, most notably, perhaps, who we're both close with. Tell me a bit about what it was like for you when you started off with with climbing and what got you into climbing. And um, yeah, I just want to want to hear in your own words a little bit about what that experience was like for you back in you know the late eighties or early nineties. 
uh, and even earlier. <laughs> and even earlier, okay. <laughs> Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, I was born into a, a climbing family. If you like, my father was a mountaineer. He climbed in the Himalayas and uh, made an ascent of a, a seven thousand two hundred meter peak uh, in the Garwal region called Mukut Parbat, uh, along with. Uh, Earl Ridderford and George Lowe and Ed Hillary, and from that, uh, two of them got invited to to the Everest reconnaissance back in 1951. So uh, there's been a long history of, of mountaineering. And when when I was young, I was living in southern New Zealand, and there wasn't really a whole lot to do back in those days. It was before Facebook and TikTok and all of that. So of course. you kind of read books, or you could play rugby, or you could. Uh, you know, I was lucky. I my family was into going to the outdoors, so I got experience going to the outdoors from from when I was quite young, and uh, and I, it resonated with me. I wasn't really into the, the structured sports. I enjoyed being in the outdoors. I enjoyed the freedom it gave me. And uh, from you know when I was twelve, thirteen years old, I was going to the mountains by myself and meeting up with other people and going climbing or sometimes doing solo trips. You know, reasonably easy terrain. Uh, Let me um, pause there for you for there for a moment because um, I probably no I am remiss in one fact that the impetus for us having this conversation was actually you publishing a book called Everest Guide and you of course let you know gave me a copy and I read it it's a great great read great story it's published in New Zealand currently uh, and hopefully uh, everywhere else soon and you know this is one of the parts that you know I'm going to read a little quote from the book that I think connects to something because you talked about your father you talked about this reconnaissance expedition obviously New Zealand mountaineers were very involved in you know the the first ascent of Mount Everest and you know you wrote um, you talked about your your father and you said whether all of this had an impact on me as a young climber, I will never know, but I suspect that some of what transpired and my father's subsequent feelings of having been usurped by people who were no more deserving than he did filter into my subconsciousness. Now, that's a really interesting, I wrote that down and highlighted that section of your book because I thought it was a really interesting uh, self-reflection as to how, you know, our father's feelings you know sort of generationally affect the shapes of our lives you know how did you how did that how did that tell me talk to me about that like how did that feel how did that am i on to something there or am i just grasping at straws what how do you see that now <laughs> no i think i think you're definitely on to something there and the uh you know the long story in a very short version is that uh after um, my father and Earl Ridderford and uh, Sherpa Hassan climbed Mukut Parbat, uh, they got an invite from the British Everest Expedition, Reconnaissance Expedition, for two of them to join them on Everest. And, uh, and that was difficult because you had four people who all felt that they deserved uh, to be on this expedition. And, and my father quickly stepped backward from that uh, that basically the argument that ensued overnight and uh, in, in a town in remote India, um, seeing that the whole 
uh, ambience and, and friendship had all fallen apart in this expedition because of the competition to, to be involved. And it was a bit of a um, bad call from uh, the, whoever it was in the uh, reconnaissance expedition who invited the Kiwis. If they'd have just invited all four of them, then, then it wouldn't have been a problem. But uh, so, you know, my father went on and saw, you know, Ed Hillary becoming the first person to climb Everest and, you know, rightfully so, he deserved it and, you know, there was no question about that, but it was, you know, he, he'd been very close and missed that opportunity. Uh, personally, I feel that maybe my father might not have even been the one to climb Everest if he'd been given the opportunity because he would have passed it on to somebody else to give the opportunity to, he was that sort of guy. And, uh, you know, he wasn't out there just grabbing it for himself. Uh, but I think that was probably always there in, in the background in my early family life and the way that I suppose uh, that affected me when we're talking about our dads is it made me realise that you should, um, you know, take opportunities when they present themselves. And that's probably something that I've done in, in my life differently than maybe what my father had done. Yeah, I would, I would feel like I'm actually, uh, would say something similar for me. And I think that, you know, with my father, with his relationship with mountaineering and climbing, you know, I think that, you know, he, he always reminisced very fondly on the years where he was able to climb and mountaineer a lot. But then once he had a family, it was, it was just financially and logistically really difficult for him to continue that path. And, I think that, you know, that, you know, I just suppose that some part of his regret filtered into me wanting to, you know, it's probably a pretty normal thing. And you see this all the time in sports, right? And he never pressured me by any means, but I definitely think that it affected my passion for mountaineering and my, and climbing and being like, okay, like he, you know, he didn't, he wished he had done more of this. That's something I'm going to learn from. And I'm going to make sure I don't make that. I don't know, mistake is maybe too strong of a word, but have that regret maybe. Um, and I, I sense that in, in, in your, in your well-written book. And so I, I thought that that was interesting because we also kind of came as I was kind of talking about, like, you know, we came up both in a similar way that we we're both really passionate about climbing. We both came into the, into climbing at, from a young age. So our fathers, and we both found guiding at a relatively young age, and we found uh, mentors who were who were mountain guides who who exposed us to things. And uh, you know, talk to me a little bit, and you wrote about it in your book really well. But I would like to hear from you in, in this context how guiding kind of shaped your climbing and your I don't know even survival or survivability mm -hmm. as a climber. And I know this is something we've talked about with Barry in other conversations as well, one-on-one, -on -one, but I'd like to hear more about that. Yes, well, following on from your question before about you know where I came from uh, as a young mountaineer after being exposed to the outdoors, uh, I got into mountaineering in New Zealand and, and rock climbing was kind of just beginning at that stage. I mean, do you mm. remember EBs? Uh, yeah. Yeah, really old rock shoes made of solid, rubber that kind of slipped on everything. Uh, we were very lucky to have British climber John Allen come over to New Zealand and lived in Christchurch where I was living at the time and introduced a bunch of us to you know, more high-end rock climbing and then people like Tobin Sorensen turned up you know, when we were getting into the Alpine and uh, 
yeah, but but our mindset was uh, formulated by, I suppose, the the, the British uh, background of uh, Mountain Magazine, and that was our access to what was going on in the rest of the world of mountaineering. Uh, and so I was, you know, climbed Mount Cook when I was seventeen, uh, and then went on to basically just commit my, myself to to climbing. And I was really interested in getting into the greater ranges. I would be in Australia in the summers, uh, rock climbing at Mount Arapiles. Uh, and, you know, in my early 20s, just sort of starting to think about getting further around the world. Uh, I went to America for a, a couple of years, uh, living at Lake Tahoe and climbing in Yosemite. Did a, you know, my first wall climb with a buddy was a two day ascent of El Cap back in 1982. Um, uh, by the nose, and then we went into the Salafe, and you know it was like, oh yeah, this is this is good. Uh, being on the <laughs> rock was uh, was amazing. The reason we did the, the nose quickly is because we only had uh, three cams and twenty carabiners and a set of hexes minus number ten, so we didn't really have time to stop around putting gear in. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but all, you could also say with only three cams and hexes that that would really slow a person down. I mean, now people go up there with, I don't know, like 30 or 40 cams and they take more than two days most of the time. So like that's it's really impressive. Like I don't think people understand the context of what climbing was like in 1982. I mean, even just what harnesses were like and what ropes were like and you know what the carabiners were like. It was just not, nothing that we have now worked nearly as well. As it, you know, as it back then, things just didn't work. I mean, you're probably belaying with a stitch plate or something, you yes. know, you know, just just totally different. Yeah, yeah, totally different and very rudimentary and Firay rock shoes, which certainly don't fit a Kiwi foot, um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so on. But uh, so then, uh, you know, I was back climbing New Zealand and, you know, starting to solo some. You know, reasonable sort of uh, climbs and doing some alpine climbing there, and then uh, I'd come back from from the US and and got into um, heli ski guiding. Uh, initially, I'd actually resisted getting into mountain guiding because I saw a lot of friends get into guiding, give up their own personal climbing, and I was aware that I didn't want to do that. Uh, still very focused on my own climbing, but I kind of got into it through heli ski guiding and then started to do my qualifications and um, you know over a few years uh, became an IFMGA guide and I when I went into that I was uh, talking to friends saying well I don't know getting into this guiding stuff where whether I'll learn very much and I was very taken aback by recognizing how little I actually knew as an amateur climber even a strong amateur climber uh, I see that being an amateur climber, a good amateur climber, is being an expert in the art of selfishness. And what I mean by that is that you look after yourself and your climbing partner looks after themselves. And if you have to, you help each other. But you're actually both at an equal footing and you're you know, doing your very best to get up to climb. And, and that's, that independence is really, really important uh, for both of you to achieve that. And then you come together for those parts where you're helping each other. But uh, what I recognised when I got into guiding was having to make rational decisions about the well-being of the people that I'm taking and making decisions that I can reflect on later and go, yes, that was the right decision to make for this particular 
situation scenario. Yeah, you wrote a really nice passage I want to read quickly. You wrote, even though I was virtually destitute, I was cognizant that I was drinking deeply from the vessel of life, aware that the mountains were constantly changing and moving with every temperature shift or wind change. I learned that decision-making had to be fluid and in keeping with the moment in an arena where the slightest complacency could lead to bad outcomes, I knew intuitively that it was imperative to retain the highest degree of vigilance. My guiding gave me a platform from which to extend myself. And then you talked about, uh, you know, doing, going on an expedition to, I think, one of the most beautiful mountains in the world, Uli Biajo, which I've always just loved uh, that, that mountain. And, you know, I think it, those of us that know you in the community, uh, especially from guiding, you know, frankly, I didn't know that you'd been to Uli Biajo. Like, I didn't know that you'd climbed that um, incredible mountain. And, you know, any, I mean, hardly is, I don't know how many ascents that thing has had, but a handful, three, four in all of yep. history, right? So, like, a, a really rare thing. So, you know, it, it's, it, it's really, I think, interesting. And today there is certainly far more information available to amateur climbers in terms of what's safe. And I mean, there's all kinds of books and Instagram videos and everything else about how to build safe anchors or all of the, all of the things that go into making climbing decisions. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed and that I think one of the things about guiding that I think really augmented my climbing was the structure of the guide training I I went through in the in the US in the 90s was how do I say this it was such that it was set up as a learning opportunity and a, and a refinement and it was not so much of like hey we're going to teach you this thing and this is all there is to know it's just like it was more about Hey, these situations are extremely dynamic. These are the tools. These are sort of the where you shift from this tool to that tool, but it's not a hard black and white line. It's a it's a gray zone, and you know what some people short rope, other people may need to pitch, and of course it's going to depend on other factors like conditions or your gear or the weight difference or the between the client and the guide or all all kinds of other factors, right? And so. Um, that gave me like a, a really good framework for which to sort of analyze and problem solve in my own climbing within the context of, you know, staying, staying safe, which is, you know, a relative term, of course, in the mountains, but yeah. And it's interesting that you say that. And if I can ask you a question, so did you think that in your mountaineering and your high altitude mountaineering, that, that uh, process of mindset, I guess, that you're talking about held you in good stead for, for what you achieved? Absolutely did. Absolutely did. And I had a similar experience with you in that I, I didn't know for sure that I wanted to become a mountain guide. And I went into it, you know, kind of uh, as on a part-time basis, kind of as a summer, as a summer job, basically. And I had a really great mentor uh, immediately in a, in a guy named Matt Culberson, who is, is still around uh, in the climbing community and in the, in the Utah area. And Matt told me something that was really important and left a huge impression on me, which was to keep my guiding and my climbing separate. And that, that, was, that was something that was really, 
I took to heart. And I think that also helped me a lot in, in developing both as a climber and a guide that guiding was one thing. And like, as you were saying, like the focus isn't on you, it's, it's, it's on the, on the guests and helping them. Your, your focus is outward always. And with climbing, as you say, it's like the focus is inwards. It's on like, what can I do? How can I evolve? How can I challenge myself in a new way? Uh, those kinds of things, but there are obviously many parallels and share a lot of the same, you know, terrain and features and aspects. And, you know, for me going to high altitude a bunch of times as a mountain guide gave me a lot of the confidence to do that in my personal climbing and be like, yeah, I've been to 6,000 meters. I don't know, 20 times. I'm not going to, I'm going to be fine when I go up there, it's going to be slow. You know, you know what to expect. Right. Whereas, so I think that there was a good intersection of the, the two for me personally. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, you and I both agree that uh, in some ways it might have saved our lives becoming a mountain guide. I certainly feel that the pathway that I was on, and, and I think you and others are really, um, you know, making um, statements about this and bringing this to the fore, is that, you know, how far do you go as a mountaineer um, uh, before something happens? And, you know, what's the you know how do we avoid this occurring so frequently in in our community of um, you know of losing people uh, you know with uh, through the if you like the, the competition with mountaineering or the drive or whatever it is that that is uh, you know what gets us out there doing harder and harder things and you know I recognise that at one point that you know my following by following a guiding pathway I could still uh, get my mountaineering satisfaction, especially once I got into high altitude guiding, uh, where there were very, very different challenges from, say, you know, guiding at, at lower altitudes, uh, that uh, kind of fulfilled me in a way that filled that gap that I might have otherwise had by pursuing more and more difficult um, technical objectives. And whilst I, you know, don't aspire anymore to go and, you know, climb as hard as, uh, you know, I wanted to at one stage, you know, I still want to go away and do uh, trips of my own, but I think I can reflect on what I've learned from guiding to to understand how to keep that on the right side of the uh, or relatively correct side of the, the safety barrier. And, uh, you know, and I think I was very lucky because I came in, in an era when high altitude guiding was just starting. Uh, we were right at the fore of it. We were learning as we went, and obviously, '96 was a very big learning opportunity, as as tragic as it was. And what I saw there was the whole guiding community, how to guiding community, all of a sudden, you know, grow up. Uh, we all were involved in the events, whether it was our team or somebody else's team that was there, but we all realised that we had to come together and help each other on the mountain. Uh, and on the whole. Uh, certainly with a lot of the operators you know, we connect with there, it's like the competition's over when you get to the mountain and then you're kind of helping each other out where, where you can. And uh, that's one of the things I, I, I love about guiding and mountaineering in general is uh, you know, that feeling of, of community and, and sharing the challenge if, if you happen to be on the mountain with other people. Uh, and you know, now that things are a little bit more crowded, uh, as far as you know, more operators coming in from all over the world and, and different nationalities involved, uh, it does appear that it might have gone back to a little bit of uh, uh, being competitive 
uh, to try and get a point of difference. But that's not a, a game I really like to play. And even though others are playing it, uh, you know, my, my passion is still to be in the mountains, take people into the mountains and, and have a good time. I mean, really, at the end of the day, what are you doing it for? It's for personal growth. It's for enjoyment. It's for challenge, uh, satisfaction. And uh, as soon as that is lost, uh, you know, to me, there's no point in doing it. It's not just about standing on the summit like a lot of people think it is. Yeah, and one thing that struck me when reading your book is you mentioned that on the first time you climbed Mount Everest in 1992, I believe, yes. uh, you you didn't have harnesses on. There were no fixed ropes above above the Geneva Spur, I assume. You know, that's obviously changed tremendously. You know, is there some part of that that you... I don't know if this is the right word. Is there some part of that, those days that you wish would come back that you could, you know, I don't know if you romanticize these things, if that's the right word, but what aspect, if you could, if you could bring back certain parts of that pre 96 era on Everest, would there be something that you would, would reinstill? Um, on Everest? Not really. I mean, apart from the numbers of people really, I think a lot of what has transpired over the years, fixed ropes on Everest and you know, Sherpa support, you know, being stronger and so on and so on, um, I, I think was part of a natural progression. It's better management than the, what there used to be around. As you know, and as you always focused on the, in your own climbing career, there are thousands of other mountains and routes out there with nobody on them. And if that's actually what you want, then you can go there and do that. But I think, um, you know, as Reinhold Messner put it, you know, Everest is now just high altitude tourism. And, and to a degree, that's that's what it is. And it's been um, managed. Uh, but, you know, I see that as being part of the positive. You know, when we first mm -hmm. were there in the early 90s, uh, the Sherpas that we worked with uh, were really there just to try and make some money. They weren't really focused on mountaineering. And I've, you know, personally been really involved in trying to uh, evolve that and now I look around and I see these professionals in the mountains getting well compensated for what they do and getting recognized for what they do uh, and you know I've always admired them for you know their, their strength and to be working alongside them in the mountains but to actually then have that structure management structure whether whether it's a western leader or a Nepalese leader or whatever uh, working in with professionals at every level uh, in every role on the mountain with proper fixed ropes, proper anchors, um, you know, and good comms, good rescue systems and so on. Uh, I see it as, as, as uh, something that uh, is an evolution and a natural evolution. People want to climb Everest. If people want to climb Everest away from the crowds, well, there's still plenty of routes to go and do. I don't think anyone's climbed the West Ridge for many, many years. You know, if you want, to, if you want that, please go and do it. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, I think um, there's there's not really much that uh, that I look back at and say I wish it was like those days because um, I, I'm, I've been really happy to see the improvements that are going on. There's still a long way to go uh, in some areas, but but you know, I think over time we we might get there. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I've really appreciated, you know, your perspective on 
on Everest over the years because you have been there, I don't know, as long or longer than probably anyone else guiding on that mountain. And you've seen everything from let's say 1992 where you're up there with with clients, but there you don't, you know, there's no harnesses, there's no fixed ropes, you know, to to what the way it is today. And I've n- never been there, obviously, so I, I can't say exactly what that's like. But and I f- agree with with you that you know this is a progression of of that's very natural, it's very human, and at the same time, I think it's important. And this is why I think your book is so important. I think. It is important, and we do have a responsibility as people who have, you know, uh, survived this this long in our in our careers in the mountains, if I may be blunt, to remind people of the history and where we ca- where this has come from, and you know that that this moment in twenty twenty four is again just another moment. It's not the apogee. It's going to continue to evolve and to change. And that's also normal and natural as, you know, people are always going to climb Everest because it's the highest mountain in the world. And why shouldn't they? And, you know, the work you do supports people. The work that an athlete do does supports a lot of people to fulfill those dreams. And as you said, people have different motivations. Some it's personal development, some it's personal challenge. Some want to get famous. Some don't care about that at all, you know, and everything in between. And then, of course, there's always the multitude of mountains beyond Everest that, offer a limited opportunity for, you know, expression of whatever that is people want to express out there. And so I think that it's, it's really important for people to hear, you know, these stories and, you know, in your book, obviously, I think as, as, as everyone expected, you do recount your, you know, your version of uh, your, your experience with the 1996 tragedy you were obviously in, in base camp when all of that was was sort of going down on the upper mountain that that fateful night and day, and were instrumental in organizing a lot of the rescue efforts that that followed. And you know, now we're almost twenty years on, or I mean, no, sorry, almost is it almost thirty? Can that almost be thirty years on? Yeah. Wow, almost thirty years on. Wow, that doesn't seem like that long ago. I'm getting old. Almost thirty years on from that, and you know, we haven't had probably another tragedy quite like that. Though it does feel like things are arcing a little bit more in that direction recently. Is that just my perception, or is that? As, a, as an outsider, or what's your perspective? I think you're absolutely correct there, Steve, as far as that, that specific type of event. I mean, obviously, the 2014 avalanche, uh, which unfortunately yeah. took 16 <clears throat> Sherpa, was um, you know the most dramatic. Um, you know, and then the avalanche, uh, the, the earthquake in, uh, avalanche in the base camp in 2015, uh, somewhere between 18 and 22 lives were lost. Uh, but as far as uh, an event high on the mountain, uh, you know, 96 still stands out. And I think the reason that it stands out is because that was at the very outset of the internet being available, I mean, around the world and and also at at base camp. And so satellite communications uh, was new. Prior to that, uh, any of these big events that ever happened, there was a time lag before they ever got reported. 
whether it was somebody having to run down and get to a telephone further down the valley or post a letter or whatever it used to be, send the pigeons out. Uh, <laughs> so 96 was dramatic in that respect. Uh, I think what you're referring to with the, what's happened now, like there was something like 18 people died on Everest last year uh, and you know, 10 or 11 of them were completely avoidable. And you know, what we're seeing is a, is a, is a, I suppose it's a reflection of the modern age. Uh, you've got, you know, some people out there telling everybody to go hard, you know, give it everything you've got, never give up. Uh, so some people are taking that literally, even though they don't have the experience to know when they should give up or when they've actually drained their own tank and, you know, that they're exhausted uh, and what it takes to get down off a mountain and, and how difficult all that is. So, um you know, and that's happening at the same time as you're getting a lot of, uh, especially Nepalese operators, uh, doing the one-to-one um, guiding uh, up on Mount Everest, where a person has a personal Sherpa. They get up high on Mount Everest on summit day. They, you know, they might make it to the summit. They might not. But then they're exhausted. Uh, they fall over. The Sherpa who's looking after them can't rescue them by themselves, and so they get left behind. And that happened like 10 or 11 times this last season on Everest, uh, which is very different from the approach of climbing with a team uh, where you have the strength of a team and you care if somebody's having issues, then you can, as a team, you can resolve that issue. And we build in strategies into our approach for our summit days to deal specifically with that. Uh, so... You know, you've got a combination of, of things going on there, This, uh, which is a lot of it is, is about how to sell tickets on your Everest expedition. You make it cheap and you make it sound attractive and you, uh, you know, so looks like good weather in the brochure uh, until things go wrong. And, and people who are very inexperienced in the mountains, uh, who have never had that day where they've had to dig deep just to get themselves back from the mountain or known when to turn around or they're summit focused and when they get to the summit they say to you know the guides or the sherpas or whoever um um, stuff get me down uh just doesn't work like that and i think there needs to be more education for people about what is required to uh to go onto one of those expeditions and unfortunately and fortunately everest is so accessible these days that anybody can join without actually having the the experience in the background uh, to actually be able to look after themselves in that environment. They, they kind of get sold this idea that you don't need any experience, you can just come along and you'll get looked after, uh, which I've always thought is completely wrong. My approach is that everybody who's there should be a mountaineer. They should have done the uh, requisite steps to uh, gain the skills and the experience so that when they get to Everest, they can really appreciate it. They've earned it for themselves. It's not just something they've bought off the shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you. I'm just going to read one short sentence that you wrote in your book, which calls out this uh, this idea really well. It says, "You wrote when properly prepared, a climber's res- when properly prepared, a climber's response to challenges will become instinctive, particularly when poised on the extreme edge of their physical capacity to survive." I mean, that, that just kind of in a nutshell sums it up, right? Like, you know, that's what becoming a mountaineer is, is, you know, finding what those, what those edge of physical capacities to survive 
are like and where they are for you and how you know altitude affects you as an individual because we're all a little different in, in our responses and so on and so forth so you know when you coach someone someone if you know if we're talking and i say guy like you know i've i've done you know some mountaineering and I climb Cho'oyu and I'm ready to uh, tackle Everest and I need to select a, a team, a select a guide, select an outfitter. What do you tell people? Uh, well, it really depends on on what their prerequisites are. I mean, if somebody had climbed Cho'oyu in good style, uh, then, you know, I would certainly be wanting to welcome them onto one of our teams. Uh, but we're also seeing people who haven't had the opportunity to go to very, very high altitude, uh, but based upon what their uh, duration of um, or length of time they've been going into the mountains, uh, what climbing that they've managed to do, what level of climbing they've achieved. You know, we, we make uh, assessments. We're often talking to guides who have worked with uh, climbers uh, to get feedback on on how they've been, because it's not just about their climbing ability. It's also for us. It's actually about their uh, ability to operate in a team, and we want to work with people who uh, are going to be nice to be around for a couple of months. I mean, you've got to realise that we're putting people under the most stressful environment that they've ever been in their whole lives, and if they've not been exposed to that before, um, they may not recognise that. Uh, you know, a lot of their um, insecurities or fears or whatever might come out and they might not be a, a great team member. And again, coming back to my reasons for wanting to be in the mountains, which is to, to be with people, share an experience, uh, you know, have a great time, obviously, you know, come home. Uh, you know, those those are all part of the factor. It's not just about climbing ability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's it's so so interesting to you know hear your perspective on this because you have been doing this so long. And I, one of the things that I've observed whenever I talk to you know guides that have been in in this as long as as you and I have, they, we pretty much all come to the same conclusion. <laughs> you know, I don't. There's there's really not a lot of there's I, I really have yet to meet anyone who's been you know doing this for the amount of time that you have or you know i'm not as as long as don't have the years that you do in it and i've never guided on everest or at extreme altitudes like like you have but the conclusions like these these kind of prerequisites you look for and people are this are ultimately the same um because one of the things when i talk to people about you know, we sometimes get people who come to us for the physical training, the physical preparation, and they don't sometimes know yet who they're going to climb with. And I always encourage people to focus on their relationships and, you know, just to find a company, whether it's a Sherpa or West-based outfitter or a, a West, quote unquote, Western outfitter, um, that they develop a relationship with the guides there and who they're going to be climbing with. And they don't. And I think once you kind of put it to them like that, like, yeah, you don't want to just be a, a random assignment to some person that you've never met before on the day you're going to go to the highest point in the world. Like that's, 
not may work out okay, <laughs> but if the chips are down, you want somebody there who is invested in you as a human and as a friend and as a peer and will, you know, will be there for you um, when you may need them. And so that's, that all kind of factors into to this. And, uh, you know, you guys at Adventure Consultants have certainly kind of made a reputation for yourselves of, of taking this approach with your teams over the year, I mean, for, for decades now. And, you know, you're well, well known for that. And I, I always really appreciate that and always feel comfortable, you know, sending people your way and ha- introduce, ha- you know, they might not be the right fit, right? You may meet, talk to these people and be like, no, nah, I, you know, we would like you to come and, you know, I don't know, do another trip with us. So we get to know you a bit first and not everybody's willing to do that. Some people have this like imposed timeline as, as we both know. And, you know, there's other people that will take, take them on that timeline and that's okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is. I mean, it's okay. Uh, unless you meet them on the mountain and, and <laughs> have see to rescue them, them. <laughs> and they have to, be involved in, you know, assisting them when they when things fall apart and the operator they've gone with doesn't have the, uh, you know, the backup to support them. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that, that's part of it. But, you know, we're, we're talking about maybe some of the um, the, the challenges there, but uh, I'd also like to really point out that I've met some of the most amazing people in the world on these expeditions. And that's one of the joys I get out of being a guide is, is meeting people from different walks of life and and some really, really incredible people that have become, you know, great friends. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, sometimes probably guilty of uh, maybe not being able to carry on some of those uh, relationships as, as much as we'd like to because we're off on another trip with a new group of, of guests and, uh, you know, off on another continent or, or whatever and hardly even have time to reflect on, uh, what was a person's uh, trip of a lifetime for them, but yet it was uh, just part of the pathway for us. And I think that's something that I've tried to balance out in my guiding is to try and just measure that and, and, and peg it back a little bit so that, uh, you know, I, I can still continue some of those relationships and, and, and also enjoy the process of guiding because it is super satisfying to get a group of people, bring them together uh, and have, a lot of fun and get up the mountain in the best style possible uh, and then all go back home friends. And that is, you know, really what we're, we're trying to achieve on, on every expedition and, and trek that, that, that we run. And I'd say that, um, you know, most of the time we're really successful at that. And, and that's what keeps us in the game because there are a lot of challenges to being a guide. There's, you know, a lot of, like I've mentioned, a lot of people are under a lot of pressure and so on. Uh, you know, People don't always uh, perform the way that they would hope that they do or have an idea that they might. And you know, there, are, there, are, there are challenges for sure. Uh, but what I like about it is you learn a lot about yourself in these situations. You learn a lot about yourself in the mountains in general. I always say that it's like holding a, a mirror up to yourself where you get to see all of your strengths and all of your weaknesses and you can then just be rational about it. Yes, those are my strengths. Oh, these are the areas I've still got to work on. So I'll, I'll work on those. And uh, if you're you know, open to uh, evolving as a, as a person and, and learning, and then I think uh, the fact that we've gone through all of these challenges, we learn how we perform when faced with challenge. So we learn a lot about ourselves that maybe a lot of other people who don't 
test themselves, never learn about themselves. And I think that's one of the, the great things about mountaineering in general. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, you as you're talking, my mind was going in a in a hundred different directions. But if you if you think about, you know, some of these these incredible people that you've you've been able to climb with over the years, you know, and you think back on on that, you know, oh well, first of all, I think I have to ask this question. I'm I, I don't I, part of me personally doesn't want to, but how many times have you climbed Mount Everest now at this point and and how many times have you climbed the seven summits? I mean it must have been a couple right. of times for all of these. Uh, well well I've climbed Everest five times. Uh I've had a couple of other times where I've turned back once just at the base of the Hillary step. That was actually in ninety five, which I write about in my book. Right. Um and I turned back a couple of hundred meters from the summit one other time to bring somebody else down again. Uh I've uh, done seven of the 8,000-meter peaks. I've done some of the seven summits multiple times. You know, Vincent wouldn't have no idea how many times, maybe 15. I'm, I'm not really somebody who, who counts too much with uh, <laughs> uh, the, the, the numbers, and I'm not chasing the numbers. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've been on a couple of expeditions every year uh, for the well for probably about 25 of the last 30 years. And sometimes more. Back in '97, I, you know, I did three eight thousand meter peaks in a year, and just about four. And that was, uh, you know, the back when it was very unusual to, to do that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, Steve, you, you you have mentioned quite a few times that I've been doing this a very very long time, but uh, I still don't feel that old yet. I still feel like I've got a lot of life ahead of me, and whilst a lot of it won't focus on you know lots of 8,000 meter peaks in, in the future um, you know I'm still excited about uh, opportunities in the mountains and what mountains have to offer and and uh, there's still a lot on my bucket list if you like uh, that I would like to do uh, you know example being you know skiing in various parts of the world and ski touring and you know multi-pitch rock climbing and and so on uh, but you know through through all of that it's still just uh, again having that that uh, love of being in the mountains and, and, and what it provides us. Yeah. And, I, and please don't take my emphasis on the decades of your experience as a, you know, as a slight in any way, you know, I think that both you and I have probably talked used to speaking with people who are new to mountaineering, both as guides and, you know, with uphill athlete, you know, talking to people who have maybe even yet, not yet taken a mountaineering course, let alone, you know, climb seven, 8,000 meter peaks and Everest five times and all these other things that, that, that you've done in your career. So uh, I think it's all, all relative. And I think one of the things that I love about the perspective of a lot of mountain guides that I know that, especially those that are also climbers in their own right, is that, you know, they have this kind of perspective like what you just expressed where you know you're just at a point in your journey and this is by no means the end you still have as you say a lot of life left you have a lot of things a lot of a lot of routes you'd like to climb a lot of ski tours you'd like to do and you know i think as guides one of the things that i see i've seen time and time again is you know the the sort of heroism of the average climber 
And I, I feel like one of the things that I was always really uncomfortable with as a, in my career as a professional alpinist was that my achievements were somehow better than others. Yeah. My achievements were maybe more extreme and accepted, you know, and, but I don't think that they were really any different for me than someone else who was, had not dedicated their entire life and structured their entire life for a couple of decades around this one narrow pursuit. Um, you know, that allowed me to kind of go really far in this one really narrow pursuit, but there's other people who had a, arguably much richer lives with careers and families and who knows what all other possible things are so much richness in life to experience so many things to experience. And then they may have gone, you know, in a, in a completely uh, other, other direction and just and had an incredible experience. Maybe it's climbing Everest, maybe it's Amida Blum or some, any one of a number of other mountains and, you know, what they experienced, what they learned, in that process wasn't necessarily for me any better or worse than what I experienced and vice versa. And I think that that gives us this perspective on our, on our climbing careers um, as it, as it were, maybe that's not the right term for this context, but our, our trajectory, our, our, you know, our, wherever we are in our, in our relationship with the mountains at, at any given time and allowing that to kind of change and be different. And I know for me, like, you know, I'm in, I'm at a place where like, I enjoy easy, safe climbing and, you know, skiing on days when the conditions are good. Like the other day I turned around because it was like really windy and cold and the skiing wasn't that good. And it was just like, you know what? Like after an hour, I was like, you know what? I, you know, I, I can like exist out here and keep going and like accomplish the tour, but I actually don't want to experience today like that. I've done this. And I'd actually like, if given the choice, I would rather like go home, make a good lunch, take a nap and like go to the sauna in the evening. And that's what we did. <laughs> and it was great. It was a perfect Saturday. This is just like literally three days ago. And you know, we get, we have that awareness of ourselves and, and we can say like, yeah, this is, this is what I want to experience today. And we don't have to, to push it through. And I like to try to share that perspective with people I see out there, whether it's as a guide or whatever, where they may be like, no, this is the one day I have, I have to, you know, if that's the one day you have and you have to go and accomplish that tour, that's one thing, but just understand that, you know, there are other days, there are other potential experiences Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, you know, you're, you've obviously had a, a stellar career. And, and I think at the time for you, when you were climbing, you know, at your peak, you were uh, doing what felt good to you at the time and, you know, what you wanted to achieve. And you're looking at the benchmark. And was one of the things I felt in my earlier years as a climber is not to think about what today's standards are, but to think about what the standards are going to be in five years' time and kind of use that as your benchmark because it's just it's just about mindset. And, you know, that is an interesting place to go. Um, I'm not sure, sure we don't have time to, to delve deeply into that at the moment, but, uh, you know, I think it's the same. We can apply that to other things in our lives as well, and I think that is probably the benefit you've got from, you know, from, from where you've gone. You know you've been there. You know you can do it. So you don't need to prove that to yourself anymore. And... I don't think you can actually achieve anything really at the highest level unless you're actually uh, 
passionate about it yourself and that there's something in it for you. It's not just about what other people might think about or it might just not just be about because it's harder than what other people have done. It's actually what it does for you. And that's uh, why we have pushed ourselves in our various ways to to achieve what we have. And, um, you know, long, long may people want to do that. I mean, it's part of being human is, is that, that evolution. Yeah, and you wrote about that in your book really well. And, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I read a little bit about this, you know, you wrote that you were drinking deeply from the vessel of life. And this is a nice, it's a nice visual. And I think, especially a lot of people have this feeling when they're young, and then they somehow often give up on that for a few years because they're starting a family or a career and then they come back and we often interface with them when they're 40 or 50 or 60 and they're like, well, yeah, I still have that. I still want to keep drinking from that, that vessel of life. And, uh, you know, and I, I have a different mindset now. Yes. And I I haven't mind tempering it, you know, like I, I go skiing with my son over here and he's pulling backflips off uh, cliffs. Um, I don't feel that I need to do that. <laughs> that Isn't it nice to feel that way? <laughs> uh, you know, but great to see the, you know, the, the, the youth um, expressing itself in a way that, you know, it's, uh, it's very impressive to watch. Guy, I just wanted to thank you for sharing your decades of experience and earned wisdom with us. And where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about adventure consultants or, you know, all the usual socials and websites and, and things, I suppose. And where can we find your book? Is it available as an ebook or is there a, what are the options there? I'd love to point people in the right direction. Okay, well, thanks for the opportunity, Steve. Yes, um, you can find us uh, adventureconsultants.com through the usual socials, um, looking around for us, easy to find. Uh, And also getting a hold of my book. It's only published in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, I'm going to be working on an audio book uh, this year and uh, hopefully an e-book as well once I get home. Uh, And uh, maybe might even find a way to get it published in, in the US and, and UK too, if, if possible. So uh, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's a really great read. If, uh, if you really are desperate to get a hold of a copy, you can always contact us, uh, info at adventure.co.nz and we can uh, organize to send you one from New Zealand. So it's a, a possibility as well. I just want to say thanks, Steve. It's a, a pleasure and honor to talk to you. Uh, you know, always uh, looked on at, at your pathway and the pathway of some of the friends you mentioned, like Barry and Barry Blanchard and Co. Who, uh, you know, are people who have been exponents of the of the sport, of uh, the industry for a long time, and who've got a, a mature head and a, and a great approach. So, it's been fabulous talking to you. Thanks so much. Yeah, and next time I promise I'm going to bring up the. Uh... 2002, I think it was the uh, butane stove and an oxygen cylinder, perhaps. Yeah, Maybe. I, that I think we, I think that's uh, that's we the X rays. That's the X rays. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> 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 we'll use we'll, we'll we'll keep people hanging. That thanks okay, so much, we'll guy. Be, all right, cheers, Dave. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us, guy. It's not just one, but a community. Together, we are a pill athlete. Thanks for listening.